0: Hello listeners, if you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.
1: We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
2: you speed, John Glenn.
3: Roger, 0 G and I feel fine. You my be right. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light,
2: there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11.
3: Houston uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man.
0: Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 406 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab, launch of Skylab 2. Before we proceed to the launch, I want to give a quick comparison of the launch vehicles. The Skylab crews flew to orbit on Saturn 1Bs. The last Saturn 1B that the United States launched before Skylab 2 was for Apollo 7, the first successful crewed mission for the Apollo program. Apollo 7 was confined to Earth orbit. All of the Apollo moon missions and Apollo 9 were flown with the much larger Saturn V. How much larger was it? Saturn V's that went to the moon were 363 feet tall while the Saturn I-B was only 139 feet tall. The Saturn V weighed 5,640,000 pounds at launch, while the Saturn 1B weighed only 1,254,000 pounds at launch. And don't forget, the Saturn V had three stages, while the Saturn 1B had only two. The size difference was so dramatic that the Saturn 1b had to have a high platform in order to launch on the same pad as a Saturn 5. The platform was called the milk stool because it kind of looked like a stool. Of course, the Saturn 5 was so much bigger because its payload had to break Earth's orbit and go to the moon. With the smaller size of the Saturn 1b, Came a huge cost savings. The Saturn V cost about $740 million, while the Saturn 1B was only $107 million. Okay, with that said, let's move on to the launch. On May 25, 1973, almost two weeks after the disabled Skylab entered orbit, the first crew of Commander Pete Conrad, science pilot Joe Kerwin, and pilot Paul Weitz were ready for launch aboard Skylab 2. Here's ABC and NBC's coverage of the launch.
4: It's actually a circular sleeve, if you will, a collar that fitted around the entire workshop. This is what broke loose and started the whole sequence of tragic events uh, that beset the Skylab mission. It's deliberately painted this way, by the way, to reflect heat from the sun's rays, and it was supposed to pop out five inches and provide a shield, if you will, or a buffer space, an insulation layer between it and the side of the workshop. That broke loose, of course, uh, at a minute and two seconds into the launch, came unglued, tore away one of the solar panels, uh, and created the electrical power. Now, if they can free the other solar wing this afternoon, we're going to give you an idea of what happens here, uh, of how solar energy works, of how solar energy works. Uh, This is a model of one of the solar cells on board. This blue and white device here is a series of solar cells. There are actually 260,000 of them on each of the arrays. These solar cells are picking up light, in this case the uh, ultraviolet light from our floodlights here at ABC Space Headquarters, and driving a small electric motor that turns this propeller. We can increase the power and show you how it goes up even more by pumping on this light, which speeds the propeller up enormously, that light has a higher infrared content. That's the whole secret of how Skylab is powered. It must have the sun, its solar cells must work, those solar wings must work, or the space station itself cannot work. And that's the rescue mission, prime part of the rescue mission Conrad, Kerwin, and White's have today to try to free that panel.
2: Jules, uh, when they actually go in to deploy the uh the parasol as it's now called it's going to be pretty warm in there isn't it i heard this morning that the temperature on board the uh workshop was something like 120 degrees and it's been higher than that in the last few days it's been so high frank
4: it's been so high frank that they're going to use special smoke masks such as miners use with their own breathing cartridges when they get in there tomorrow morning They'll be in flight coveralls, not the hard-pressure spacesuit. But they'll be wearing this because of toxic fumes that uh, mission control and scientists fear have been given off. Toxic fumes by the film, by urethane, polyurethane insulation in the spacecraft walls. Now, they've depressurized Skylab, taken it down to about three-quarters of one pound of pressure. It'll be repressurized tomorrow morning again just before they get in, in the hope of keeping it somewhat cooler and the air cleaner. But Conrad and Kerwin... Uh, they'll be the... T- Conrad and White's, I your pardon. As of now, will be the two men who float in. Kerwin will probably play safety man back in the command module. They'll wear these masks, work their way into the interior of the workshop, and try to deploy the parasol. And the estimated temperature in there when they go in will be anywhere from 90 to 125 degrees.
2: And it's gonna take about an hour, too, isn't it?
4: It can take, uh, one, one estimate is an hour. Some estimates
2: run as high as two and a half hours. I read somewhere where, uh, somebody mentioned it'd be like working in the desert.
4: uh, And it's very, very
2: dry. It's exactly like the desert, right. As a matter of fact, another
4: modification, it's so dry that Dr. Berry told us the other night, the astronaut's doctor, they're sending up a humidifier to dampen the place down because they fear the the astronaut's lungs
2: uh, will become too dry and they'll pick up dust particles. Well, I hope they're accurate in taking the temperature inside the, the orbital workshop on those... Fellas have to go in there. Well, it's going to be a
4: hot, dirty job, make no mistake about it, until they get the parasol or one of the other devices erected to cool it off. And it's a dangerous job in that And how
2: long after the parasol is actually in position, in other words, how long before they get the shield out there, will things begin to get uh, livable inside the workshop?
4: The estimates they've made so far are that after you get the umbrella, the parasol erected, it will begin to cool down. It'll cool down to 90 degrees from the 125 roughly that it's been at. It'll cool down to 90 degrees in about 24 hours. But that's still not very livable, yeah. that's pretty high. Uh, and they then estimate that it will take uh, another three or four days, no one is sure exactly how
5: long, to get it down to 75 degrees. Let's listen to launch control now. Thanks, Jules. Quick voice checks on their Astrocom circuit. Cryogenic topping continues. Swing arm number nine in the standby position. It will be moved back to the full retract at T-minus five minutes. Now T-minus 10 minutes 42 seconds and counting. This is Kennedy launch control Okay, not too uh, much longer
2: to wait now before the uh, actual moment of liftoff ABC news will bring you more on the first Skylab mission after this message uh, Jules the weather it seems to me is improving at least from our point of view So we'll be able to watch this launch a little It longer. looks
4: like we should have good picture all the way through a booster Burnout about two minutes and ten seconds and uh That good picture is important on this launch, which NASA didn't have on the last launch. Otherwise, it might have known, had it, it might have known what happened, what went wrong with Skylab, why that meteoroid shield tore loose. So they don't want to take chances now.
5: Let's go to Launch Control. This is Skylab Launch Control. We're passing the six-minute mark in the countdown now. Various personnel now reporting into the Spacecraft Test Supervisor, Bill Schick, that they are ready and go for launch. Bob Reed, the spacecraft test conductor, has indicated that the spacecraft is go. Launch operations manager Paul Donnelly reports go, and the director of launch operations, Walter Caprian, also has reported go for launch. Final computer programs are now being run to place the launch vehicle in a launch mode in the spacecraft the final actions to be taken there will be at the t-minus four minute mark paul whites will turn on the spacecraft batteries and at t-minus 45 seconds the last action to be taken by the crew will be taken by pete conrad when he makes a final guidance alignment we're coming up now to the five minute mark at that time the swing arm swing arm number nine will come back to the full retract position Actually, for the Saturn 1B, there are only five swing arms. The number nine designation comes from the earlier launches using this same mobile launcher uh, using the Saturn 5. The swing arm now coming back to the full retract position. It will remain in that full retract position now uh, for the rest of the countdown. At T-minus three minutes and seven seconds, the count will go on the automatic sequencer and will be carried out automatically from that time on. Now T-minus four minutes, 39 seconds and counting. This is Kennedy launch control. And if it looks like it's another routine launch,
4: it is and it isn't. In a sense it is because it's another Saturn 1B, uh, not that unusual a launch in another sense it's an extraordinary launch because nasa is up against the wall without skylab it lacks both the medical knowledge and the political arguments it needs to go ahead with its multi-billion dollar space shuttle if this rescue or salvage effort fails nasa will have to delay the shuttle to get the 500 million dollars extra it will cost to fly the backup skylab skylab b next year it's kind of ironic frank because skylab started as a quiet little poor man's workshop a poor man's space station that almost got lost in the shadow of the multi-billion dollar Apollo
0: program. Mm -hmm.
4: In many senses it got the backup people, the secondary people. Its program management left something to be desired and still leaves something to be desired in my opinion, uh, which is the reason we're in the trouble we're in now. Now NASA is up against the wall. This launch must succeed or the whole space program stops
2: cold in its tracks for the next year or two. Yes, it's important to uh, have this work successfully or or the shuttle is in uh, some jeopardy. uh, Dr. Well, Fletcher said so the other day, Chris Chris Kraft told taller. We're looking at launch
4: control now, and I can assure you this is a very nervous launch, in many ways a lot more nervous than a lot of the Apollos to the moon that somehow seemed to get so routine, although they
2: really weren't. Uh, well, of course, this mission has had its problems. Last time we were here, uh, sitting at this desk, why we expected that, to come back the next day and
5: see what this is about to happen control the launch sequence has started we are now on the automatic sequencer and the countdown will be run now by that automatic sequencer A number of functions are carried out by the sequencer and they must be carried out in the proper order or they would be automatically shut down also at the same time the launch crew here in the firing room will continue to monitor their various readouts temperatures checking the gauges for pressures and rates they could override the sequencer if necessary At the T minus three minute and six second mark, the automatic sequencer terminated the liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen replenishing. These cryogenic fuels had been being replenished since fueling was actually completed early this morning. After this uh, termination, the fuel tanks will be pressurized. Actually, uh, pressurization has now started the second stage liquid oxygen tank has now been pressurized and the first stage fuel tank also has been pressurized. Now passing the 2 minute mark in the countdown. The vents closing and these pressurizations taking place on the two stages of the Saturn 1B. At the T minus 1 minute uh, 15 second mark, Paul Whites will trip two switches it's in the command module cloudy, placing yeah. the spacecraft right. batteries very online. Dark. These batteries I will don't think launch control sees it yet, but a low deck of rain clouds has suddenly begun to move in, which is obviously also going to obscure some of the view. This time, T-minus one minute, 30 seconds, and counting, and our countdown continues to go smoothly. Also, during the automatic sequence, we'll switch to inter- internal power. We've been carrying uh, the power from a ground source up to this to save on the flight batteries at T minus 50 seconds. In the count, we'll switch to earn internal power and stay on internal power for the remainder of the count. We're approaching the one minute mark in our countdown. Mark, T minus one minute, one minute and counting in the launch of the first manned mission in Skylab. T minus 50 seconds. T minus 50 seconds and counting and we are now going to internal power. All stages switching to internal power. Stages now and lo- and fuel tanks pressurized. Approaching the 30 second mark in the countdown. At 30 seconds, water will begin spraying on the deck of the mobile launcher. T minus 30 seconds and the countdown continuing to go smoothly. The SkyLab itself orbiting some 780 nautical miles northeast of KSC at this time. T-minus 17 seconds and counting, T-minus 15. At T-minus 3.1 seconds, we'll expect the engine sequence to start on the vehicle. T-minus 7, 6, 5, 4, 3. Engine sequence start, 2, 1, 0. We have launch commit, and we have liftoff. The clock is running, and Skylab has cleared the tower. Tower right, Houston,
1: Skylab 2. We fix We've fixed anything. have got a pitch and a roll program. Houston is now controlling. The thrust is going all engines. Boy, is that a smooth ride. 25 seconds pitch and roll program started. Skylab now maneuvering to its proper flight path attitude. Mark 35 seconds, one nautical mile in altitude. Given a green by range safety. Mark 45 seconds, cabin pressure relieving, adjusting now from sea level to a space environment. Mark 50 seconds, two nautical miles in altitude.
3: The roll is complete, yes, instant.
1: Roger. Stand by for mode one, Bravo. Mark, mode one, Bravo. Roger, propellant stop is RCS command. Roger. Mark uh, one minute eight seconds. Roll program complete. Skylab Houston, your feet wet. Roger, feet wet. That, that call up from Capcom Dick Truly says Kylab now capable of water landing. One minute twenty seconds, passing through the period of maximum aerodynamic pressure on the vehicle. One minute twenty-five seconds, eight nautical miles in altitude. 35 seconds, pass through Max-Q, Skylab still flying steady on all eight engines. Okay, ADS two
3: launch vehicle are all off.
1: Roger, stand by for mode one, Charlie. Mark, you're mode one, Charlie. One, Charlie. A status check and mission control by flight director Phil Schaffer. A go, no go for staging. Give it a go for staging. Listen, you're go for staging, you're looking good. Mark, two minutes, uh, t- six seconds, 21 nautical miles in altitude, 20 nautical miles down range. Velocity now reading 5,947 feet per second. Coming up now on uh, staging and shutdown. Center engine shutdown. Seven outboards out. I got an S-4B-Late, Houston, nice staging. Roger that. Mark. Two minutes, uh, thirty five seconds, staging on schedule. Conrad White's Kerwin now riding on a good second stage engine. Coming up now on launch escape, Tower it's four bay. Tower, used on time. Uh, Roger, Tower Jettison, you're mount to. Mark 3 minutes 2 seconds, 47 nautical miles in altitude. The launch escape tower now ejected, reports Conrad. His crew safety roll no longer required. 3 minutes 12 seconds, 50 nautical miles in altitude, 84 nautical miles down range. Velocity now reading 8,200 feet per second. 3 minutes 25 seconds. The first stage and launch escape tower both falling away now, headed for their own splashdowns. Meanwhile, Conrad White's curling, now at uh, 58 nautical miles. So Skylab continuing to climb, moving out well beyond the Earth's atmosphere. Okay, Houston, the
3: uh, computer looks good here. Roger, we concur. CMC's go.
1: 58 seconds, 66 nautical
6: miles in altitude, 140 nautical miles downrange. range.
7: looking good, go at four minutes. And we're go here, Houston. About halfway there. The entire launch sequence will take about nine minutes and 51 seconds before they are inserted into orbit.
1: 15 seconds, not 71 nautical
7: miles
6: in altitude.
7: Very sad because we didn't see very much. It disappeared into the clouds here at the Cape less than a minute after liftoff. Must have been about 30 seconds or so. Uh, There was a very low cloud cover at the time of launch at about 2,000 feet. Another broken level of 8,000, another broken level of 25,000, and we saw it for about a fraction of a second as it went through one of those layers, uh, about a minute and a half after liftoff, and I don't think we got it on on the uh, television. And a large camera that we have down the coast, um, which normally would show uh, the staging and uh, show the rocket for about the first 30 or 40 miles, Could not get a picture either because of the cloud cover extending all up and down the uh, coast of Florida this morning. Uh, But everything is going well on the launch, and they still have about another four, four and a half minutes to go. John?
0: At 0700 hours Houston time, Skylab 2 blasted off its milk stool from launch complex 39B. The first Saturn 1B launch in almost five years and only the second ever launch from pad 39B. A few seconds after liftoff, as the rocket cleared the launch tower, Pete Conrad proclaimed, Clear tower and Houston, Skylab 2, we fix anything. We got a pitch and a roll program. And the rocket began its pre-programmed arc to achieve orbit. A few seconds later, Conrad proclaimed, Boy, is that a smooth ride. It was rather cloudy at the Kennedy Space Center, and some low rain clouds began to move in over the viewing area right before launch, so it didn't take long for the rocket to disappear into a cloud layer. Thankfully, unlike Conrad's last trip into space on Apollo 12, no lightning strikes were reported that day. What is not commonly known is there was a problem in the first stage booster's performance. This was a momentary glitch that could have threatened the mission. Here's what happened. When the commit signal was sent to the Saturn at ignition, the onboard instrument unit sent a command to switch the launch vehicle from internal to external power. Since there was no external power, this would have shut down the Saturn's electrical system, but not the propulsion system, and likely would have caused the disaster scenario of an uncontrollable booster, requiring the launch escape system to be activated and the command module be pulled away to safety then range safety would have had to destroy the out-of-control rocket. However, the duration of that cutoff signal was less than one second, which fortunately was too short a time for the electrical relay in the booster to be activated. Thus, nothing happened and the launch proceeded as planned. This glitch was traced to a modification of the pad electrical equipment and corrective steps were subsequently taken to prevent it from happening again. Now here's NBC's continuing coverage of the launch.
6: The rocket looked small when we saw it on the screen. Never saw one go in the, in the manned spacecraft uh, uh, series that we've seen that looked that small and it was in fact about 100 feet shorter than the normal big Saturn V that carried the men to the moon. And so it was smaller. It looked smaller. Business as usual at Cape Kennedy as the space program goes on. The Skylab 2 spaceship has burned about nine-tenths of its launch fuel now at this moment and has traveled almost a 1,000 miles. Um, It will soon be in orbit in a minute or so. Jim Hartz is at the Cape. John, they are at 89... Nautical miles altitude,
7: 522 nautical miles downrange. We are used to thinking of downrange as being uh, south of uh, Cape Kennedy. Normal launches go that way, but this one, as did the Skylab launch on May the 14th, is going north from Cape Kennedy, up along the east coast of the United States. Uh, I don't have a map with me, but I guess at this point, it's probably around North or South Carolina, somewhere along in there, heading up toward Nova Scotia. That's The orbit goes up that way, down over the top near Great Britain, across Europe, Italy, the Mediterranean, and down toward the Indian Ocean. We've never had a man launch in that direction before. And um, while we're waiting for them to get into orbit, they're okay. I just want to mention one little thing. Um, If they had had to abort uh, on the launch, they had a special set of procedures so that they would not land in the North Atlantic, where the water is very cold. The spacecraft is not built for that. It could have withstood it, but they did not want to do it. And so they had a special set of procedures so that if something had happened during the launch phase, they would have uh, been able to maneuver the spacecraft so that they would have come back to a more southerly latitude to land and uh, be picked up. Uh, So several uh, interesting things like that on this launch that we've never had to uh, worry about before. Another another thing, um, the rocket that they used was eight years old. It was built way back in the 60s, the old Saturn one D, but it performed flawlessly. Now let's listen and see just about now for the insertion.
3: Inbound for 4 capability.
1: Mark, you mode 4. Mode 4. Mark, them as 35 seconds. That mode 4 call-up uh, from Dick Truly says Skylab can reach orbit on spacecraft power only. 83 nautical miles in altitude, 950 nautical miles down range. Standing...
3: Perfect
7: down, Houston 25, 825. Roger, copy. 189.1 by 83.5. Roger, looks good. Stand by. Well, somebody was talking to me as I got the uh, orbital distances there, but it looks like
1: it's right on. shop speed? No, but, uh, that was an initial reading uh, from the onboard computer of 189 nautical miles by. nautical miles. That's very close. Very close
7: to where they wanted to be. Uh, The Skylab is in an orbit that's 270 uh, statute miles, 234 nautical miles uh, above the surface of the Earth in a nearly circular orbit. The astronauts aboard their spacecraft have been been put into what's called an elliptical orbit. Its high point is 189.1, the low point, 83.1. Being in that lower orbit, they are traveling faster than the workshop, and so they will... The reason for that is uh, they have to travel faster to catch up with it in the rendezvous sequence. That rendezvous sequence is much longer than we've been used to before. Uh, On the moon missions, they rendezvoused in the first revolution. Uh, Back in the Gemini flights here in Earth orbit from Cape Kennedy, they performed some rendezvous in the first uh, orbit. But on this one, there are two problems. One, being in this high inclination orbit that I was talking about before going very far north, Uh, Many of the tracking stations that were built in the early days of the space program uh, Cannot uh, track the spacecraft uh, uh, that far north They were built within 30 degrees of the equator because that's where most of the flights were carried out all the flights were carried out Uh, Those tracking stations were used for the moon missions, but they're just not adequate for this kind of orbit, so uh, They are going to wait in effect for five revolutions and catch up very slowly so they will have a chance to uh, to get very good tracking data from the, from the uh, stations that they will pass over from time to time. And the rendezvous is now scheduled for
8: this afternoon at about uh, 5 o'clock. John, Control, Houston. Yes, John, a few moments ago as they were coming up over Europe, Pete Conrad told astronaut Dick Truly in Mission Control, as we're coming up over Europe, I've never seen so many contrails in my life, and Truly in Mission Control came back and said, well, I trust you're higher than all of them. Conrad said, I hope so. Now, they're out of contact right now. They've just passed over the Madrid tracking station, have gone out of contact for some 30 minutes. When next, they'll be heard from here in mission control. It'll be uh, as they come over Carnarvon, Australia, moving well. As a matter of fact, uh, other comments from the astronauts indicate they have indeed separated well from their S-4B, or rocket, stage. They're now climbing slowly above it, uh, the s 4 b stage is described by the astronauts as very stable. Now in mission control at this time, we have two teams of flight controllers. Uh, one monitoring the orbiting workshop, the second team following the astronauts in their command module. And uh, there's a lieutenant commander by the name of Dick Truly talking to that all-Navy crew. Uh, Captain Pete Conrad, Commanders Joe Kerwin and Paul Weitz. At launch time, the uh, spacecraft, the orbiting workshop rather, was about 750 miles downrange at an altitude of around 234 nautical miles. So now the astronauts will play a game of catch-up, going through a complicated series of maneuvers, as mission control monitors those maneuvers for the next few hours, so that finally, in the fifth revolution, about seven hours from now, uh, they can rendezvous and then they hope to fly around the workshop. And that's when they plan to send back some television pictures so that these men in mission control take a good look and assess the damage done when that shield blew off some 11 days ago. Roy, John Chancellor, yes, uh, they they will be some.
6: I think we ought to remind the audience that the astronauts will be out of touch at various periods of the of the day uh, while they're working and living in Skylab. Could you
8: amplify that a little bit for the for the audience? Sure, can John. Uh, Matter of fact, Jim Hartz made a rather good explanation a few minutes ago, and I'm just going to quote Jim. In essence, what you're looking at here is the most northerly orbit that the United States has ever put men in. Uh, what that means in terms of ground tracking stations is that there are long periods of time when there is no tracking station able to communicate with the spacecraft. Uh, there are also a relatively small number of tracking stations, and so right now we're seeing a good sample of that. Jim Hart, the... Uh We had a modified
6: uh, spacecraft that went off this morning. Did they get all the things aboard it, stowed aboard it, that they wanted to? Right. We didn't have time to talk about that very much before the
7: launch. Uh, They put aboard the the sails that we were talking about, the covers. They had to take a few things out. They also put some (laughs) extra fuel aboard, which uh, is for their power generation. It was the heaviest uh, command module ever launched. It weighed over thirteen thousand pounds, and uh, they just tied them tied these things down with ropes. It uh, apparently was a kind of an interesting sight inside there. Never seen anything like that before.
6: John, thank you, Jim. Uh, well, they're on their way to save a two hundred ninety-four million dollar laboratory up in space.
0: Later that same launch day, the crew rendezvoused with Skylab and got their first close-up view. Of the orbital workshop. Conrad said, Tally ho, the Skylab. We got here in daylight, 1.5 miles, 29 feet per second. As suspected, Solar Wing 2 is gone completely off the bird. Solar Wing 1 is partially deployed. There is a bulge of micrometeoroid shield underneath it in the middle and it looks to be holding it down. Now here's CBS's coverage of the rendezvous and flyby.
9: It's a very important uh, moment for those men in Houston to see if their supposition, the profile they have drawn of what they think Skylab looks like from their telemetry data and from a long range uh, secret Air Force camera actually uh, matches what they're going to see now close up from uh, the uh, command module, television. To get that picture. Uh, let's hope it comes up shortly. Hearing in here from the spacecraft, mostly the voice of uh, Captain hey, Pete Conrad. Can tell me
3: if the workshop is firing tax. Stand by one, I'll check. Hang on. As a matter of fact, you don't have to tell me. I thought it was flying through clouds up here. And every time it fires, the tax puff. I can see it, and it's just a big burst of, of uh, gas out of it.
9: Let's you the attitude control system, Roger. of course. Oh, the Skylab. And yeah, Skylab. Uh,
3: Pete, you're right. We are fine.
9: This isn't going to be a very long picture uh, this time. Uh, they, the Guam station uh, isn't one of the primary stations on televiz- for television. for uh, Skylab inception. Houston, did you copy my request to Bravo and Delta quads to the PSM? Everything's on PSM, Houston. And it contracted Practice the Skylab for only a, a short time, about 10 minutes. I'll read
3: you loud and clear, Pete, hear me. Okay, I'm on Fox, you'll hear it all. Okay, good.
9: The better pictures are expected to come a little uh, later on uh, this afternoon when uh, the- In
3: CDR Houston, we're gonna be starting. To start breaking right now. Roger
9: two craft are over Texas, and then it'll be 17 minutes, and a a pretty good picture should be at that time. That that comes at about, oh, that'll come in another 20 minutes or so.
3: Houston, I can already see the uh, partially deployed solar panel. That's CS1, right? that's what we think uh, in uh, CDR Houston uh, in about one minute we'll be starting the Swiss maneuver and I'll let you know when we issue the command okay
9: least I got that confirmation from Pete Conrad that uh, indeed one of the solar panels is there and partially deployed
3: and I think it break man I don't like what's going on
10: <laughs> is this is a typical concern when you're affecting the final phase of a rendezvous. The velocity, the closing velocity is quite critical. And you, you, you do this so many times that you have uh, sort of an inbred intuition about how well the rendezvous is going. That's what Pete was referring to.
9: That was Pete Conrad, who... In PLT I Houston, I just controls leave it in it's looking better and better to us.
10: What you try to do is avoid some motion. This that, is looking so. very good now. Yeah. Even the, the light, the uh, yellow of the, the gold of the Mylar surface is showing. But what you try to do is avoid motion, relative motion, rather than closing, of course, and it's drifting across the cockpit slightly. Mm-hmm. That's what he meant by he didn't like what was going on. It's just a, he wants to smooth off the final phase of the rendezvous. Sure don't see those solar panels deployed other than the That's classic windmill. Looks
3: rather smooth. Oh. wing number one, you can see it it's uh your three solar panels is there's a bulge of meteorite shield underneath it in the middle and it looks to be holding it down. I, I think that we can take care of that with the SEVA. I mean, it looks at first inspection uh, like we ought to be able to get it out. The gold foil has turned considerably black in the sun. Roger, copy. The solar cell is clear. Hey, there's some. Hey, Houston. Go ahead. On the vent modules, all the covers are still intact. Roger. The, the covers did not leave the vent modules on wing number one. Copy. Roger, we're looking at it. I assume you're pointing just about in the place where the meteoroid shield is underneath the wing. Is that correct? Well, I'm trying to, but my picture is turned inside out and backwards, and the camera hangs up in here in a couch structure. Roger. Okay, okay it looks like the scissors. meteoroid shield <laughs> at the upper fit panel on the SAS wing has wrapped around it just slightly. My guess is that our easiest thing to do is just go to the end and try and deploy it by the weather there. And and Pete, one question that I would like to ask you, and, and that is you said you could see the butterfly hinge a while ago. Uh, could you tell us the condition of it? Well, a butterfly hinge is underneath the fast wing all the way. But the, the, and the one, thing, the one thing that's bothering me, though, is that, that if this was the wing that was down and locked, and then they opened it, then it pulled that meteoroid shield as far as it did. It pulled it an 18 feet, and that's where it, 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 it's hanging up the solar panel right at the upper vent plate. That makes sense. They used to the upper of the three vent plates, which is just below... When the shield starts, the top part of it starts, that part is wrapped onto the SAS beam by about three or four inches. Roger, Pete, and uh, I think you gave us a real good picture of uh, that piece of metal just a second ago. So, where's Houston? Hey, affirmative, we sure are. Still got uh, about nine or minutes left I, in this pass. CDR Houston, We've seen enough television to uh, let us uh, think a lot about this. You're uh, cleared to turn off the TV and uh, complete any photography you haven't gotten, and you're cleared for soft dock.
0: With the astronauts' commentary and filming, the extent of the damage to Skylab became clear. In addition to losing the protective shield during the launch, it had also ripped off one of the power generating solar arrays and seriously restricted the deployment of the second. While White's filmed the damage, Conrad completed the command module fly around and expressed his confidence that his crew could free the array during the stand-up EVA. They also informed mission control of the blackening of the gold foil on the station's surface due to the intense solar heat. And the good news that the scientific airlock which was going to be used to deploy the solar shield was free of debris. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 406 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Skylab, the launch of Skylab 2. Our next episode should be released on or about February 2nd. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email on the form on the right there. We have our 10th anniversary as a podcast coming up on February 13th, so we will probably have a little celebration, and it will, I think, will be on the second episode in February. So get your tang ready. This will probably be the last celebration for a while. The 2023 donors page is ready to be checked out. So if you have a chance, click on the donors page tab and make sure you are at the correct level and have the correct emojis. If there are any problems send me an email, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to fix it. To fix it, I um, changed the, the donors page around a little bit, so to get to previous donors pages, you have to scroll all the way down to the bottom and click now, rather than make it in a separate tab, because I was going to have to add a third tab for this year, so I went ahead and just linked them all together under that one tab called donors well, if you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 225 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. If you like social media, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Space Rocket Hist. I try to follow back everybody that follows me. And you can follow on Facebook, search for Space Rocket History. And you can also keep up with me on Patreon.com slash Space Rocket History, where in addition to episodes, I post some extra things occasionally. Okay, afterthoughts for this episode. Of course, I'd like to apologize for my mispronunciations. Uh, I wanted to give you a little perspective on the huge size difference between the Saturn 1B and the Saturn V. So I spent just a little bit of time on that. I hope that was clear. Perhaps the most important thing was that the Saturn 1B was about one-seventh of the cost of a Saturn V. You know, sometimes my mind wanders and I think about these things, and uh, I wonder... If we had not built the shuttle, would we have standardized on the Saturn 1b for low Earth orbit missions? Do you think it would be possible to have converted that lunar module compartment to take up satellites or other equipment, maybe even a small laboratory or something, or could we have followed through with some of the initial Skylab plans to put more workshops up and maybe link them together? Of course, that would also take more Saturn Vs to launch the workshops. It probably wouldn't have worked as well as the shuttle, because the shuttle had that nice big payload bay and landed on a runway, and it certainly advanced technology quite a bit. But if we did that, it would have been, in my imagination, it would have been something like what the Soviets did. Sticking with the Soyuz for so long, even now. Just some funny things I like to think about occasionally. Did you know about the instrument module problem that occurred on Skylab 2? I didn't until I researched this episode. Sometimes it just takes something to uh, jog my memory and it comes back to me, but I honestly don't think I had heard about that one before. It was a uh, potentially very serious problem. I didn't really emphasize this, but when Pete Conrad was flying that rendezvous with the Skylab, he started to get concerned about his fuel consumption. He was using a lot of fuel to station keep and to fly around the Skylab. That was not there was not a lot of fuel for that in the old command module service module. And he knew he was going to need some more fuel to do the stand up EVA. So Pete got a little nervous there and I, and I did not play the audio for that. But uh, he was concerned. Well, which network did you think did the best job of coverage? ABC, NBC, or CBS? In this case, I would give ABC the edge in the contest. Now, this is just my opinion here, so it means nothing. Jules Bergman was there at ABC, and he had this little display set up to illustrate how the solar panels worked. You heard the audio portion of that, but there was a visual portion that I watched. Uh, Now, of course, nowadays, most everybody understands how solar cells work, but in 1973, solar was still considered innovative, and Jules knew his stuff, and... I had watched, uh, I can remember watching Frank Reynolds as a teenager, and he, he was uh, just a pretty nice guy, I thought. He seemed to be a little kinder than the the rest of them. Now, that's just my memory from about, I don't know, 40, 50 years ago. But uh, I always liked him. And finally, we are getting Skylab back on track now. All the worrying about how bad it could be. You know how you feel when you don't know what's wrong and you have to wait until you get there to find out? Well, all that's over now. And the disaster planning is over because it it wasn't a complete disaster. The Skylab 2 crew gave us a good look at the problem with the solar wing and it looked like they could fix that. And the scientific airlock was clear enough to get the cover out. So it looked like it was pretty good news. Moving on to our personal life. We are both well now, except I have this lingering cough that just wants to hang on. About the only thing I can do that helps it is chewing gum. I guess that lubricates my throat or something. I don't know. But that's about the only thing that helps it. You know those cracks in my basement that I've mentioned about a hundred times here? <laughs> they're getting bigger. I guess it's the uh, change in temperature maybe over the winter, or I don't know. The more water, we have had quite a bit of uh, rain here, but I found a new one. I don't know what the builder's going to do about that or not because we're supposed to wait until 11 months after we move into the house, before we contact the builder, so he can come back and fix these little problems. (laughs) I have a a concern that he's not going to want to fix that. And it is going to be a mess if he fixes it the way I think it's going to have to be done. If he fixes it right, it will be a mess because that would involve pouring more concrete. And I've got that basement filled up, guys. <laughs> I mean, it's it's full. I don't think it can take a whole lot more. I have to take that stuff out. Mercy goodness. That'll be a mess. But in the meantime, we have been mending fences around the farm. You know, I've got a lot of fences on the uh west side there that I did not realize they were in such bad shape. I got some there just down. The deer run through there. I got, the deer have made a nice path through there. And we spent a fair amount of time fixing them the other day. And, and I walked by yesterday and that thing, the deer had knocked it back down again because the deer are determined to take that path through my field to get to wherever it is they want to go. And, uh, they had knocked it down. I'm assuming it's the deer. I didn't see any human tracks there, so I'm thinking it's the deer. But uh, we're going to get back on that fence. That's going to be a, a winter project, I think. It's so much easier to do in the winter because you have all that vegetation has died out and you can get closer to where the old fence is and you can put the barbed wire up. And I, We had to put up a bunch of fence posts, too, because that wood was rotten, too. It just hadn't been, the the place just hadn't been taken care of in a long time. So there's a lot of that type of stuff to do. It's also nice out here in the winter because you can see so much more. That all that, uh, all that uh, underbrush is, is dying out and you can go into the woods and you can really see what all is there. There's a bunch of hills in that woods. There's some deep gullies. I found about three springs out there. And it, it drains all the way down. We got a we have a pond back there. And uh uh my son-in-law's been working hard on that. He he cut down a bunch of brush over there and it looks really nice that pond. And we've been catching fish out of it, so it it's pretty nice. And then that pond, it drains on down into the the mighty Yadkin down there. <laughs> So it's it's really it's really nice out here. I'm glad I made the move because uh, where I was was getting really crowded. After we get the fences mended, I'm thinking our next project may be a pole barn, if we have enough wood and metal roofing laying around. Because I don't wanna, I don't really have a whole lot of money to spend on it because I've had to spend so much on the property. But. Uh, I'm hoping we've got enough laying around where I don't have to buy very much. And uh, I built one of those barns before. It was more like a carport, the one I built. And that was uh, it Was actually me and my father built that. And that was way back in the, the 70s because I wanted a place to park my car under. <laughs> so I would have some coverage for it out there. And we put up one and uh, it held up. Gosh, that thing held up. It would still be up if they didn't take it down, but it really held up well. So I'm hoping to build something like that before we get too much further in. It's so much more pleasant in the winter here because you don't have all the bugs and the poison ivy's not as uh, out as much because that stuff, we, we get it all the time over here there's a lot of poison ivy growing and in the winter it's not nearly as bad okay well that's all i have for our personal life i hope it didn't bore you too much there i know a lot of you like hearing these updates because you've written in and told me so so i i put them in when something happens or when i can think of something over the past fortnight we received 13 donations and pledges I want to give a Big Ten thank you to Wayne and Naomi Holmes from Washington State who donated at the Salyut Skylab level and earned the Big Ten emoji for being with us for 10 years. Thank you for supporting in all those years. Been here since the start. We appreciate that. Mark Yu from South Dakota donated at the Orion level and earned a Galaxy emoji. Eric P. from Illinois donated at the Apollo level and earned an alien emoji. Gary A. donated at the Apollo level and earned a shooting star emoji. Daniel S. from Bowling Green, Kentucky donated at the Apollo level and earned a shooting star emoji. Robert M. from San Antonio, Texas donated at the Apollo level and earned a space communications dish emoji. David D. from Portland, Maine, donated at the Salyut Skylab level and earned a galaxy emoji. Takneel from Germany, donated at the Soyuz level and earned a shooting star emoji. Christopher L. from Australia, donated at the Mercury level and earned a Nova emoji. Karsten E. from Denmark, donated at the Mercury level and earned an alien emoji and Daryl S. donated at the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. AJS from Canada increased his pledge on Patreon to the Soyuz level and earned a rocket emoji. And Janice T. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Soyuz level and earned a moon emoji. Thank you so much. Our Patreon donors for 2023 have reached 241. Last time uh, we were at 233 we had lost like 11 donors or something like that and it turned out it was almost entirely from credit cards expiring so uh i sent out emails to everybody whose credit card expired and got most of them back so we're at 241 which it looks a whole lot better i wanted to uh thank all of you who uh got your credit card fixed I really appreciate that so if you are on recurring payments uh, we would really appreciate if you wouldn't mind if it's not too much trouble to occasionally check the expiration date on your credit cards and uh, your credit card that you've used for recurring payments and make sure that it's still valid and not expiring soon Our total donors, which includes Patreon, PayPal, and checks, for 2023, have reached 252 with an overall goal of 450 for this year. So, if you're enjoying this podcast that has been running now for nearly 10 years without commercial interruptions, and you can't afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Or you can donate by check. And now, new for 2023, you can also donate using Venmo or Zelle. If you want to use those or write a check, just email me. Space Rocket History at gmail.com and I will give you the information you need to do that. Just trying to make it easier to donate whatever platform you want to use. And by the way, if you began the emoji maneuver last year, now is an excellent time to complete it. We have about eight supporters who have earned the big 10-year longevity emoji for 10 years of support, and I just wanted to give them a shout-out. Uh, thank you, Olfert, Wayne and Naomi, Ron, Christoph, Guido, Dane Unicorn, Niles, and Future Rama King. We appreciate that 10 years. We surely do. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway.
10: Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. The winner for this episode will get the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet or the regular magnet or two stickers or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected William Dunaway. William Dunaway, if you will email us spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 252 of you who have contributed thus far in 2023.
0: My sources for this episode were NASA, ABC News, NBC News, CBS News, Rocket and Space Technology Website, Skylab America's Space Station by David Shaler, NASA, Skylab Owner's Workshop Manual by David Baker, Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, Outpost on the Frontier by J. Chaldeck, The Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. And that's all we have for this episode. I will try to have episode 407 posted on or about February 2nd. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.